Welcome to a very special segment of Our Voices. I'm here with a, one of our participants of Stand Strong, who's going to be telling us a story of how they personally experienced domestic violence. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, so this started when I was uh, 17 and had my first relationship um, with someone, and it was... Um, we argued a lot, and he was a little bit older than me, um, like 23, but it got physical. And when it got physical, I just didn't even think anything of it. I would turn on myself, actually, because I thought I deserved it. It was my fault, what was wrong with me. And uh, growing up uh, in the 60s, it was just, uh, there was a lot of this, especially men towards women. You know, it was uh, very uh, oppressive. And you just accepted that kind of thing back then. Um, so I was, I accepted it until he finally left. And, uh, you know, I continued to turn on myself by uh, abusing myself with drinking. Um, I had cut myself back then um, when I was young, um, but mostly I drank. And, and um, when I finally did get married, uh, my husband was 15 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And he was very verbally abusive, and I just defended myself by being just as abusive. And this time you fought back. Yeah, well... Rather than hurt yourself, you yeah, actually... well, I still drank a lot, but... I, I did by this time so that was I was already in my I was um what was I about 20 well I was 22 um and I I did I I would argue back and we just screamed at each other but I had seen this all my life you know my my mother was married a lot of times and she would always um end up in abusive relationships mm -hmm. as well and there was always a lot of screaming and fighting going on. And my mother was screaming and fighting with me even until I figured out I'm as big as she is, I'm going to hit back. Right. You know, and so uh, when I was with my husband, um, I eventually left because a lot of the problem was I, then I, I didn't drink as much anymore. And he continued to drink. And so I left and then my drinking started up again. And um, I finally quit drinking um, a little over 10 years ago now, but um, around eight, nine years ago, right after I quit drinking, I got in this relationship with uh, a very um, manipulative person. Um, he had been in prison um, for um, child molestation, and I, again, was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I can understand. Because, of course, he, he explains it, you know. And, mm -hmm. and, um, but he, was, he really just needed someone so that it looked good for his probation. I see. You were an asset. Yes. And, um, and he was very verbally abusive. I learned later on that he had been physically abusive with his three wives and in his relationships but he was really controlling himself for probation. You know, he didn't want to go back to prison. Wow. And he used to say a lot to me, um, oh, I know if we ever break up, you're going to go run into probation and tell them all kinds of stuff and, and get me thrown back in prison. I mean, a lot of the things that he said to me were, were all manipulative, and I was still being oppressed and manipulated, as I had been all my life, until finally one night he lost it. And, and he physically picked me up by my neck with one hand and pinned me to the wall of, and with my feet dangling a foot off the floor. And I'm big, you wow. know, so he was, he, he was just like... He was like some superhero movie. Right, he had full of adrenaline. Wow. And, and he, was, he was choking me. And I knew I was, uh, I, I, and the thought was, well, I'm either going to die or I'm not. And I just went limp because I, I surrendered. There was nothing I could do. And when I went limp, I don't know, maybe he thought he had killed me or knocked me out. And, and he, like, came to because he was in, like, a rage blackout. Like a trance. Yeah. Just totally. I could see the light came back on in his eyes when That's I went scary. limp. And he dropped me. And, um, and so that was five years. Let's see. 
four years before I, I left. And people would say to me, why do you stay? And about halfway through the relationship, I came to the conclusion that I was still there because I needed to learn something about my relationship with men in my life. Hmm. And that he was a lesson that I needed to learn. And I knew he was trying to cheat behind my back all the time. And, and he finally, um, you know, met with someone else and was trying to, to start up another relationship um, with someone much, much, much younger than him. So it's like on to the next one. You'd served your yes. purpose. Well, you see, when I, when I first got with him, he said, you know, I want you to be my girlfriend. And I said, I have three rules. Uh, this is a monogamous relationship. I am um, not a pit stop on the way to someone else, and I'm going to be the only woman in your life. And, uh, and he broke all those rules. So by that, that time, it took me all that time to gain the strength and know who I was and learn who I was and feel strong enough in myself that I did not need another person in my life. To break the cycle. Yes, because I... I grew up in a household, like I said, my mother was married many times, and I thought you had to have a partner to be complete in the world. And it took that horrible experience of almost dying to learn that I don't need anyone as a partner to be a complete person and to know who I am and live my life and be happy. So. Um, so I broke up with him, and he was, of course, very upset <laughs> and cried. And uh, he cried. He cried like a baby, and um, and immediately jumped into another relationship. Within weeks, I mean, well, you know, like, like serial I, monogamy. Well, yeah, because like <laughs> I said, he was already looking for someone else. So. Serial monogamist. Yeah. There are people that are have to go from relationship to relationship to relationship. It's a phenomenon, but it's it's quite consistent with abusers because as people wise up, they're looking for their next prey. Right. It's a predatory in instinct. And he, he the, the girl that I caught him with, quote unquote, was um, a young girl and he was looking for a daddy-daughter relationship with her. Oh, the Lord. And it was, um, you know, he was going to be the dominant daddy, and she was supposed to be a submissive little girl. He was getting into the world of kink. Yes. Because he, that was, you know, his that was his thing, and that's why he was in prison. That's because, what flicks his back, apparently. Yeah. It's, what he, it's his thing. You know, it's nothing against kinksters, but mm -hmm. sometimes people tend to get into fetishes because of their own dark desires to make them justified. And then they're consenting adults, but then fortunately there's an undertow and an underworld of how people that are predatory tend to covet their darker selves in these alternative lifestyles because they expect them to be more accepting. Mm -hmm. And there is a big difference. Yeah, Maladjusted is maladjusted no matter how much fun you want to have. Right. I was like, <laughs> I'm not a prude, you know, I'm, I'm you know. You can be open-minded, yeah, but. Yeah, if I'm in a, in a monogamous relationship with my partner, I was like, let's be adventurous. People I'm have right, explorations you know? in a healthy way. Yes. but but then I realized it was unhealthy for him. He was, he would go into places beyond where I would set, draw the line. That's when, mm -hmm. yeah, and this is interesting that we're getting into this topic because um, I myself am actually a practicing Kingster for more than 20 years mm -hmm. and in my experience and also as a survivor I have noticed that the BDSM community gets a bad rep because of the perversions of individuals that have undermasked something darker into two adults with consenting exploration of a mm -hmm. mutual mindset I mean, it could be kink, it could be Christianity, mm -hmm. it could be the book club. It's one of those things where people that are maladjusted tend to covet their true nature amongst the freaks because they expect it to be more open-minded. 
it's easier to hide. And because I was used to being abused. In a far greater length. Right. I yeah. thought, you know, when when I said, um, you know, you just crossed my boundary and <laughs> he turned it around as, well, it was my fault. Now he felt betrayed. Why know? are, whoa, I'm wondering, see, that that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a whole other segment about tourism in alternative lifestyles. There are people who often like to proclaim that they are something under the guise of wearing a mask and they absolutely forget the principles of what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to say as kind of a, a disclaimer to the fetish community, and I'm sure they'll agree with me, is that between consenting adults, and I'm sure like there's a lot of the public that is curious about this because of the whole Fifty Shades mm-hmm. of Grey bit and whatever... <laughs> At some point, a hard line is a hard line, Mm -hmm. and unless you've agreed to allow no-holds-barred limit pushing, no is still no. It's definitely Mm -hmm. hell no, and there isn't any abuse or blame for having a limit. It's a mutual, Mm -hmm. consensual thing. So you had this person who was perverting adult exploration Mm -hmm. to to get you to kind of like, you know, strangers with candy. Yeah, and see, but that's (laughs) where I learned to develop boundaries. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and to to say I have a boundary, you know, and because before it was just like walk on me, walk on me, you know. That's what everybody. You were conditioned does. for it. Yes, and I learned from this relationship that I it's okay for me to have a boundary. And, yeah. And and to set that boundary and to end the relationship when that boundary is crossed. Well, I I think that holding you up by your neck. Like a super villain is pretty much a deal breaker. That that's that's not a boundary. That's mm-hmm. that's a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a short break and be right back. Hi, I'm back with our special anonymous guests today with our our voices segment as part of the Stand Strong Domestic Violence Survivor interviews, and we were just talking, ma'am, and thank you for your story about how. Your experience was how it started from just the conditioning of growing up in an, a hostile environment with home, how you witnessed the cycle of violence with your family members, your mother, and the multiple relationships, and how it became, you know, the predecessor for your first abusive relationship, just kind of escalating until finally you reached this epiphany after a near-death experience about this guy. Do, you had mentioned earlier in the first part of the interview that this for you was like a an epiphany of that you had you found your powers what i'm really sensing yeah yeah tell us about that uh well i learned over the years and, and this was just like the graduate school of learning that um i didn't have to have someone in my life especially someone who was going to treat me like crap right and that I was enough on my own. That's hard <laughs> as a survivor to really grasp. And, you know, like so many people, and, and, and I'm just inspired that that hits you because so many people go through this. And like you said before, you were in these relationships because you never felt good enough and you just let people walk all over you. And then it's just like all of a sudden your own self-worth kicks in and you, and you saved yourself. Was it just the near-death experience that led to this? Or did people try to intervene, advocate, ask? or How, how did you reach this, this pivotal point in people, yourself? People asked me a lot, why are you still with him? Uh-huh. Um, because they knew what was going on. And I kept saying, I have something yet to learn. And I knew that this was a lesson. And being that I was with him for seven years, I say, well, I have a graduate degree in this now. Because I spent a few months shy of seven years dealing with this. And at first, at first I would, you know, accept what he would tell me because I was trusting mm. and I didn't know any better. And then I, and he, he would revel in in no in believing that he was evil and i would i don't know if he was trying to solicit 
what an he, argument from me because what do you I, mean he reveled in believing he was evil was he like monologuing like sinister bad guy or yes oh i was wow i would you know he'd say things like um i you know encountered these demons at one point in my life and it's never been the same since and i believe that they've you know invaded me and i am uh, i'm you know i know i'm evil and i have you know destroyed every life i've ever come in contact with i've heard uh-huh. this a million times from like so many people who have been abused by abusers it's like it's that old proverb you knew i was a snake when you picked me up they usually announce the malevolence lightheartedly it's a reoccurring thing it's a level of narcissism that i've noticed of i am poison oh it never works out for me it's like energy goes where attention flows and i find that very interesting that other survivors have that in common where they're saying that this malevolence just openly admits, just like the bad guy in a movie, mwah ha 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 I'm an asshole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he loved being the asshole. But he would, but when he would say things like, when everything is going right in my life, then I know it's going to crash and it's going to just all fall apart. But instead of comforting him, again, maybe I was selfish on my part, which was good, I'd look at it from the perspective of I would always turn those things around into the silver lining. And so when he'd say, whenever anything's going good, it's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. And I would say, well, you know, I've noticed whenever things are going really bad, something good happens. You know, that's another reoccurring thing <laughs> that I've noticed. You have the abuser that is this malevolent downer. And then the victim is always trying to carry or upload, lift this adult that should have their shit together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's something, it's, it's almost like they, they feed off of codependency. And it, it's a weird statistical relationship that they said if you put victim and survivor in the same room, they'll find each other without yeah. even knowing each yeah. other. And I find that that's very interesting that we all share those thread-like similarities. It is. It's really, really yeah. disturbing, too. It's like, if we just would listen to each other and start more conversations like these, we might actually have a shot at, you know, like the football world where they have plays. We know this playbook. Yes. Well, I, you know, and I started to read things about narcissists, and uh-huh. I'm like, oh my god, you know, this guy is, and then or narcissistic psychopaths actually, he fit like every single warning system. You know, it was like, <laughs> it, it, like just the other night I was watching a show that had like twenty things on a checklist. If you're, if you're, if your psychologist gives you a test to see if you're psychopath. There's like 20 things, and they're writing them down, and I'm looking at the screen, and I'm going, yep, 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 every one of them, you know? So I learned this, but it's like, um, I got to the point, finally, it was like, okay, I couldn't even break up with him. So one of the things that they do, and I've noticed this, is, um, because he badmouthed all of his old relationships, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was always their fault. So I'm like, well, he's never going to break up with me because uh, that would make him the bad guy. He's just going to make it so horrible that I'm going to have to break up with him. Exactly. So he can make me the bad guy and badmouth me later on. Yeah, shaming and smear campaigns. Yeah. I know all about that shit. Yes, because they, they, they're all the same. They have these same traits. And it's the same them. level of malevolence. Yeah. It's this tantrum of if I can't have my way the hell with you and your your you you know you've you've taken away the parasite's host and it's like the bad guy in the movie it's gonna come back Mm -hmm. yeah the other thing was so i knew um things about him that he thought i didn't know (laughs) because you were actually in a relationship unlike he was (laughs) well like his password oh wow and i had i saw his emails and he didn't know that I did because he'd change it. But I knew him very well. And so it wasn't hard, you know, within a week I'd have his password again. And I saw every, all the, I saw porn that he was writing and sending in. I what saw, do you mean? So there was like, some guy had a porn forum on, on uh, and he was on probation, he wasn't supposed to be doing this. So he, I, he had like this uh, guy was writing um, daddy daughter stories and he said, boy, I could tell you a few stories. 
because he had more than one email as well. He had a secret email. So he had a secret alter ego as a pornographic script writer? Right. Oh, and he had written a book. He was working on his pornographic book that he was writing. And he had written a book and published it even about the woman, the 17-year-old girl that had broken up his first marriage. He was so proud of all of this, you know. Uh, and and so um, anyway, he wrote this as fiction, right? Yeah. But it at was, least he was, was that he, smart. But, but he but the the stories that he was sending to this guy with the forum were true. He said, "Now I can't tell you anything that he said w- was ever true." But he told stories about you know ex girlfriends and their daughters and all kinds of very disturbing. So things. there's this just this delusional world that's. So what I can't understand is as a person, how you're going to be with someone that's a partner and then hide. Right. It was, it must have been extremely stimulating as well as exhausting. Psychologically unwell to have this double life coexisting at once. And he prided himself in that. And I could see that from his emails. Huh. So, um, I could never confront him. About the truth, though. You can't talk to a psycho like a normal human being. And the problem (laughs) was, if I said anything, the whole issue would become my snooping. Nothing else would exist in the universe except the fact that I snooped and stuck my nose in his business. um, And that that would be the big ultimate sin. Okay. My question... Okay. Did he live with you or you live with him? We technically didn't live together. He had a house in my backyard. Te- te- okay. And he would sleep over at my house because I lived on a property that had a main house and then there was a little house in the backyard. And so You were he- neighbors? Yeah. Okay, got it. I- and been, he been would, there, he done would that. stay every night at my house. So let- let's talk about that. <laughs> This relationship, how you guys got together. So you guys were neighbors. And but we met on Craigslist. Oh, that's the mother of all evil. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Craigslist. Dun, dun, dun. We all have those horror stories now, mm-hmm. don't we? But of course, I had to tell his probation officer we met at the gem show because he was not supposed to be on Craigslist. So he had me lie for him from the get-go. Okay, too. so he's got you lying from the get-go. He's your neighbor. And this is not to shame you in any way. I just want to get an understanding of how mm-hmm. this timeline. So you guys are living near each other, and you just start hanging out, or no. how, how does this work? So we started to date off of Craigslist, and then um, he lived in one one area of town, and I lived in another. Okay. And then I moved into this house that had uh, another little like house a on it, mother-in-law cottage. Yes. Right. And. That's when he moved into the little house in the backyard. So he followed you? Yeah. That's scary. Well, it was mutual. I was like, look, at the here's time, this little house. But yeah, of course, yeah. At the when, time, you, when you say it, I meet a dude on Craigslist. Mm-hmm. He asks me to lie. I get a place, and he moves into the mother-in-law's cottage mm-hmm. nearby. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of creepy. Well, now I can see that. But, well, but see, and the whole thing was... From the beginning, he had to divulge. I had to go to probation with him, and he had to, had to divulge his entire crime, which he had already to me, um, and then he had to divulge it in front of his probation officer, and I had to sign a paper saying, yes, I understand this, blah, blah, blah. It's like being a beard. It's basically like having your gay best friend say he needs a beard to go have dinner with his family. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's like, mm-hmm. let's, you were a trophy asset for the parole officer. Absolutely, because he didn't. <laughs> and that's why he had to live he near had to, you. He had to fill out a schedule. Wow. And he wasn't allowed to go anywhere. But if he had a girlfriend, he could go out to dinner. I afforded him a lot you of You were freedom. his beard. That is exactly. Yeah. And it took me a few years to figure that one out. But once I did, I was like, um... See, because, yeah, by that time I was really invested in the relationship. But was it one-sided or mutual, if you don't mind my asking? When, Were there warning signs? Yeah, right away. He, he accidentally 
left his email open on my computer and goes to take a bath. This is <sighs> like a few months, just a couple months into the relationship. And so I think I'm checking my email and I'm like, uh-oh, there's, you know, like a conversation going on between him and some other woman. It's like, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Online sex or whatever, you know. Thirst bait. Yeah, and so they're... Thirst bait. Yeah, they're just having a little <laughs> sexy conversation. They're sexting, okay. Yeah, sexting. And, on, and I, I go into the bathroom and I said, um, you accidentally used my email address and you got an email. And he's like, no, I didn't. Because he was so clever, you know. He So this was a test to see how I was going to react because he would never, ever, now that I know him, he'd never leave his email open. He'd always close it out. He was feeling you out. Yeah. And so I'm, he wanted to see how I'd react. This when is I a sociopath. Yes. Wow. And so at, once I realized what was going on, I realized this was one of the most valuable lessons I could ever learn in my life. Do you feel like you were profiled by this guy online? Yes. That absolutely. Yeah. He was like an older single lonely woman you know yeah and uh, I had no kids you know well the kids are gone um you know I was alone and um yeah well then I saw all the the Craigslist ads that he had run you know and and I could see he was totally throwing his his hook out there you know his fishing pole thirst bait he was fishing hard you know and I'm the one that that was his white whale. Yeah. You were his ticket out of parole. Yeah, and so, you know, early on, I was like, because I thought I was in love, and I'd say, I love you, and he'd say, I'm sorry. Wait, what? Then when I, for I would say, so finally, after the last few years, I didn't say I love you. Because, of course, for me, as a codependent, because that's kind of like what happens to you when you're walked on all your life, you know? This is the relationship you need. That, that You give, just want to be loved. Yeah, and you want to just give and, and cure everybody and you help just everyone be, and fix yeah, them. And, I can relate. Yeah, and so I would... Uh, it's you know, a nurturing so spirit. I just, yeah, I just wanted to, to... Everything was about helping him and screw me, you know? So um, You're a giver. Yeah, so every time I would say, I love you... He'd say, I'm sorry. We're going to take a short break and come back. Hello, everyone. This is Stells. We are back with our anonymous guest who is telling me the dynamics of what it's like to actually be with a sociopathic narcissist and to not only move from the transition of victim, but to survivor. And that's what I really love about this story is that it is tragic that she had a near-death experience, but amongst all of this chaos and this cycle of violence, we find that, I mean, her higher self is just a badass. She pretty much, I mean, you chose enlightenment. That That is powerful right Every, there. Everything that I was going through once I got over the trying to save him phase was about- Saving um, yourself. Saving myself. What can I learn? How can I grow? Because where am I gonna go? after this because I knew this was temporary. I knew this was people, like they say, people come into your lives for a season or mm-hmm. a reason and a lesson and all that stuff. You leveled up. I knew it was a lesson by that time and that I wanted to take something away from this with, you know, for myself. Okay, let me ask you, and this is something, since I, I feel like as far as when we're doing these victim interviews, you're one of the most awesome candidates to talk to because I can actually get in depth mm-hmm. with you. You, you've talked about the peaking moment of your life lesson as being when he pretty much held you about a foot off the ground and strangling you. Were there anything that escalated up toward that? Like it starts mm-hmm. with the let's lie to my parole officer, mm-hmm. let's hide and test these emails. Do you mind going more into depth sure. about how this just went batshit crazy? So because I was in his emails, I knew he was having this relationship with some woman that he had gone to high school with for a few months many years ago and um one time he i confronted him 
about having a phone sex relationship with her. And he said, and he said, you've been in my email. And I said, no. He said, well, then how do you know? I said, well, I went and got my cards read today. You know, I saw my she psychic. Went, she told blame me. Blame your psychic friend. You use the Miss Cleo defense? Really? Yeah. Wow. So, but, and then he changed his password, but I guessed it in a week. Anyway, so this woman had sent him his, her panties. At his request. Her knickers. Wow, how lovely. Yes. She Tom Jones'd him. Yes. Okay. So, he, and like I said, he lived in the little house in the backyard and would stay every night with me. So he insisted upon... Wait, she took a picture... I'm sorry. She she took photos of her under things or, she, or herself she's, in them. She's, well, she sent him a couple of bra shots, but she sent him a pair of panties. At his request. Oh, she mailed them to her. Right. She mailed them to him. Like so straight that, up Tom Jones. Right, so he could have them. And th I found them in his drawer in his nightstand next to the bed. <coughs> I left them there, of course. But so there was. Oh, my God. Yeah, this one night he had had a conversation with her. I saw online and he was uh, going to go call her and have, you know, I'm going to, you know, sniff your panties while I we, talk on the sexed. phone with you. Yeah. And, it's um, like right out of a, a movie he, where he, the wife finds the underwear and just goes, it's over. He wanted you know? to live a porn movie, you know? He had, it was just Do you porn. think he had a pornography obsession? Yeah. I mean, most adults do, but like there are people that tend to be obsessive yes. and delusional with it. Yes. It's like gambling level obsession. Oh, he was a gambling addict. Aha. That's where he was always out of pocket with his probation. He spent, you know, if he wasn't with me, he was at the casino. So he had a very addictive behavior. Yes. Do you think that he had mental health issues? Oh, yes. Was he seeking treatment? No, because he was on probation and he said that if he went in for therapy, I mean, he had to go to this group weekly with a psychiatrist for child molesters. Wait, what? Because that's what he'd been in prison for. Okay, whoa, whoa, back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up. So the probation that he was on was for child molestation, and he was a secret pornographic scriptwriter for... He had spent five years in prison for it. And then he, when he came out, instead of parole, they put him on probation. And when the judge... And he had ten years probation, and when the judge said, I want you to apologize to your victim... He said, I just spent five years apologizing. The judge gave him 10 more years of probation. Right on for the yeah. judge. The judge <laughs> is like, with scheduling, he didn't, he didn't yeah. learn. Back to the... Right. <laughs> wow. So he, he, so he would say, if I go to um, for therapy, they'll want to put me on medicine, and then I'll have to be tested by probation for, you know, to make sure the medicine is in my system. I'm like, just don't take your meds then. Oh, no, they'll okay. test me to make sure it's Why in my system. Why was he afraid to seek help? First of all, I don't think he th thought he needed help. He liked living the tragic, I'm, you know, so evil life. Woe is me. Yeah. So it's kind of like making himself seem helpless. Well, he had to stay that way to r maintain his victim status. He had a victim spirit. Okay, <laughs> this is the topic that I'd like to talk about. Somebody coined the phrase once on Facebook, who shall be unnamed, and thank you for that, ma'am, about the victim spirit. A lot of times, and just, just to educate our listeners, people who want to cry out for attention will state that they are victims and have this codependency used as a manipulation factor to draw in nurturing or helpful souls mm -hmm. as part of their malevolence because they feel entitled. And it's this, woe is me, I need help, I can't function, I can't do anything that regular adults like the rest of us should have the common sense to do because I'm a special snowflake right. and a narcissist and your job is to be here for me. Right. These people needed their asses kicked as kids or something. I don't know what happened or how their parents malfunctioned. But thanks for raising a jackass in a minister so, society. I do know he was, he was um, well, I suspected it. but And he told me, but like I said, everything he ever said to me, I don't know if it was true or not. But I, after a lot of research, I came to the conclusion, and he confirmed it, that he had been molested um, when he was seven. So he comes from a cycle of just... 
And he said Marjorie. it was his mother's friend. And after researching it uh, into the subject deeper, I believe it was his mother himself. And he did have a penchant for going uh, onto forums and um, telling stories about um, sex with his sisters and his mother and stuff like that. You know, and he sought attention in that way as well. Um, so I don't know how maybe this that was even true. His I don't know. Secret life is what he was doing this, or was he? Uh, you... Oh, that was one of his secrets. Yeah. I'm so glad you got away from this knucklehead. Yeah, but I see. I learned a lot about sociopathic narcissists. So you can and, spot and, them now, and, huh? Oh yeah, and that was just it. You know, um, so that there was, you know, just all of this dysfunction in his life, and so the thing that led up to the um, the choking incident that night. Yeah. So that so like I said, he was having this um, parole um, online and... c- conversation with panty lady and <laughs> the tom jones fan and so he went to his little house and i tried knocking on his door for some reason and he wouldn't answer it now i had had an experience years before where a friend of mine um, had killed themselves and was found in the apartment and so when wow. i knock on someone's door and they don't answer and i know they're home I get a little triggered. And you go in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I had a key to his house, so I went in, and he got very upset that I was there, and he because he really wanted to be alone to have this conversation and panties and things going how does on. He, how is he in a relationship with you and not know this is part of one of your triggers? He didn't care. Wow. I just, I find it very hard to be in any kind of actual, real intimate relationship with anyone on any level especially romantically like even as mutual friends I, I'm not even I'm, I'm just someone who knows hearing your story mm-hmm. and I can understand why you went in the house but this was mm-hmm. your lover and yes and That's so when weird. I went in there and he was screaming at me to go home and I was I was at this point screaming back at him to come over to my house as well. Because I knew when I left him alone that the Tom Jones um, party was going to start. Right. And I was really trying to prevent it from happening at that uh-huh. point in time. Right. Well, he was in bed. And he was in a normal-sized bedroom. And he took a pillow off of his bed and threw it across the room. Mind you, a pillow Threw it so hard it went through the window. Wait. And a screen. He threw a pillow with such force, it went through a screen and a window? Right. It broke the window and the screen. We'll be right back. This is Stelz Durasi. We're, we're here with our anonymous survivor of quite an intricate tale here. And we recently left off before the intermission about how he had taken a pillow of all things, and thrown it with such brute force that it went all the way through the window. That is insane. I mean... It went across the room, through the screen and the window, and the window and, the, and broke the window and the screen. So, um, that's when I knew I was in trouble. Was it a big <laughs> pillow? Or no, just, it was just a bed pillow, you know? Something you, just, you put your head on, you know, one of those little $5 things pillows that you buy and and so then he gets up and I'm starting to scoot down the hallway trying I'm like and I remember thinking I think I'd better get away from him because he and then he started banging his head into the wall till it bled wow and it was frightening and I started to get really scared so I'm scooting my way down the hallway and I get to the living room and he comes into the living room before I can get away, and that's when he grabbed me by the throat and pinned me to the wall and lifted me up a foot off the ground. And I thought, well, I'm going to die here right now, or I'm not. One or the other doesn't. I got no, I've got no control over this now, so I just went limp. And when I went limp, I saw the light come back on in his eyes, and, um, and he released his grasp and dropped me. Were there, were there any other warning signs you saw before the, the actual choking? Like, 
Did he have f- f- outbursts, fits, yes. mood swings? Yes, he was. He would have violent outbursts. Um, and any time I would try to talk to him about anything, he would say, don't argue with me or I'm going to leave. Or he'd just get up and leave. And because he knew that I didn't want him to leave. And, and, and at first, the first you know, year, I would be like, no, 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 stay, stay, stay. Uh, until I learned that that's, um, that was part of the game. Right. You know, that, that this was all a game that was going on. Well, it, it, it's more like a codependency. They thrive on it is what I've come to understand. Mm-hmm. They need the guilt trip because it feeds the narcissism. Yeah, it's called narcissistic supply. Wow, I've never heard that term. Yeah, and that and that the, they have and and they don't care who gives it to them as long as they get their supply. Their fix. Yeah, it's it, it really is an addiction. Mm-hmm. And and you know it was just like the addiction to gambling, or um, you know his addiction to sex, and um, that it was it was just part of the supply. You know he it was very. Um, complex. It's very dehumanizing. Yes, you're an you're you're an object and not actually in a in a functional absolutely. Loving, healthy relationship. I I I met a need in his life um, so you're, that he could have more freedom. You're which a drug. Is probation and and it was uh, and he he knew how to manipulate me just enough to keep me there in the relationship. And, 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 and again, if, uh, if ever I said anything, um, he would jump into the victim role and it would be all my fault. Um, if I said, you know, when I said, um, if, when I said that I knew he was having phone sex with panty lady, um, immediately it was not about the fact that he was betraying me and and the fact that he said he would be monogamous to me no it was all about my snooping he'd gaslight you yeah wow he t- he said immediately he said you've been in my emails did what how did you you know did, how did you get my password and i'm like i don't have your password but it, that was it was nothing about his behavior it was all turned around onto me how long were you with this guy total? Just like a few months shy of seven years. Seven years. Now that you're out of this relationship, like after you left the abuse, what was the adjustment period like for you? Just you, 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 you've said a few mm-hmm. times you felt that this was like your revelation. This is why you wrote it out. This is why you endured it. You went through that near-death experience. What... Was the transition like to the woman you are today? That transition period was important to me, too, because at first I learned that I was just as addicted to this relationship as well. I was, I was, I had literal withdrawal symptoms because what happened was he was going away to work in another state for a few weeks. And he said, let's just put this on the burner. And let's not break up right now. Because like I said, he was crying and he was upset all of a sudden. This was, he had some other little girl he was trying to get in her pants, you know. So, But all of a sudden this was because he, he didn't want me to screw up his chances of going to work in another state. He needed you for the parole. Right. So okay. he said, let's talk about this when, you, when I get back. Let's just take a break. And I'm like, nope. Here's everything that you have in my house. It's over. And because I understand the no contact, you should have no contact. When you break up, you break up. And, right. it was, and I felt withdrawal symptoms. It was hard. I would text him and, uh, to the point where he was saying, leave me alone. When he got back from Texas, by that time, I knew he already had another girlfriend within a couple weeks. And he... All of us, I said, look, let's just have, let's just talk, you know. Why? Are you going to have the police come meet me when I, when I come to talk to you? This Why would is, the police need to meet? What did he Because do? now he was being paranoid. He said that I was going to have the police come and arrest him, or, or, you know, just for, for meeting. For what? Right, right, just for what. That's what I kept saying. I'm not Why? understanding. Was there any kind of legal recourse? Or? No, there was nothing. So he went to Texas. He used you to get parole. 
And he had already started another relationship, you know, psychologically and had gone probably through with it. So his guilt, perhaps, of that you're just going to meet him with the cops? He was, he, so because by this time, see, at first, he just wanted to take a break. Then he gets back from Texas. Well, now that break is over. And I said, I made a mistake with cutting it off completely. You're right. Let's just take a break. You're back from Texas. Let's get back together. Because now I was playing his game. Um, because he had a girl. So so I broke up with him the beginning of November. By January, he was engaged to someone else. That's how fast this, this happened. Um, because, you, yeah. Yeah. So, so... So when he got and so he got back, um, yeah, because he started actually seeing her um, a month after I broke up with him. Because and I I had been watching him online, and um, and and still checking his emails. I knew what was going on. And again, my therapist would say, "Well, you know, why? Why are you doing this?" I'm like, you know, because I feel the withdrawal. I'm still addicted to this, and I'm working my way out of so it. So you were in therapy dealing with the exiting of this relationship? I was in therapy the whole time, yeah. Did your therapist give you any red flags? Oh, my therapist was one of those people saying, what are you still doing with this guy? And I kept telling her. You just had to kind of I have to, work yourself yes, out of this labyrinth. I have labyrinth. to learn what I need to learn. So in that breaking up, after that transition... And I realized that I had an addiction to the relationship as well, and that I needed to overcome that. Um, so um, one night, I I saw him on his motorcycle at midnight um, near my house. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily on the exact side street, but on a, the main street by my house. Mm-hmm. And I knew that wasn't on his schedule. And um, I had been to the probation office just to let them know I uh, I broke up with him. So when the shit hits the fan, I'm not involved because this guy's a loose cannon. So um, did they take you seriously? Yeah, they were like, okay, whatever. You're broke up. We understand that. So when I when I saw him near my house, which would have been. Um, around November, December or January on the motorcycle. That's when I said, that's a little too close for comfort for me. And I went back to probation and I said, look, this guy's running around, doing whatever he wants to, wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. His schedule means nothing to him. And um, there are, you know, he's always at the casino and he's never... You told them the truth. I told them everything. And And what was their reaction? So um, I showed them emails. He had not told, he called his probation officer ugly names and was not supposed to be engaged. They didn't know he was engaged. Hell hath no fury. Right. And um, then I showed the whole conversation, you know, that he had had, how he picked up this other person in a relationship and um but they probably not, just looked at it as the no, plight of an ex-girlfriend no he no. was not supposed to be on on um social media on 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 a, on a dating site or social media or on the internet and i had all i had it in black and white but the big thing was um i had talked about when he told me about when he'd gone to work out of state and as a sex offender you're supposed to he's a, like on the national registry he's supposed to register out of state as out, an yeah, offender as soon as he goes over there and did they know he was out of state yeah he had to get approval from them but there was like some kind of confusion about his registration over there he didn't do it probably he went there twice he told me the first time he registered and he told me the second time he went back he went to register and they said dad don't worry about it you're already registered Apparently, he never registered. That's what they got him on, finally. But what they initially arrested him over was when I told them that he was living with his um, son and her, his girl and his son's girlfriend. And, the, and he talked about building a safe behind a, a picture in the wall to hide his son's guns. He's not allowed to have he's, a gun. He's a, yeah, he's yeah. a felon. He's not allowed not to have guns. guns in the house. And then I went to them and I said, frankly, the um, AK-15 or AR-15, or I don't know anything about guns. It was one of those big guns 
that's not going to fit behind a picture. I said, I don't think this one's behind a picture. Yeah, I don't think this is in a wall safe here. This is big, you know. It's not a handgun. Yeah, it's not. It was a big, like, you know, machine gun it's kind of It's military grade issue. Yeah. So, wow, it's G.I. Joe. So they, okay. raided, they raided the house. Did they find anything? They found a lot of guns. Wow. So he, he has been in jail ever since. They charged him. He pleaded, pleaded down to not registering when he went out of state, and he got two and a half years for violating probation. But for some reason, that if you add up the days in real life, it doesn't add up to two and a half years. Whatever, he's getting out in July, and so I'm glad I moved. Didn't they? Because I saw in the emails where he said, oh, she put me back in prison. I knew she would. Have you looked into options to protect yourself? I have a restraining order against him. Beyond that. No. The, yeah, we'll talk about okay. that. Because we're doing these programs, I know about resources. One of the things that they do not tell people in good old Pima County is mm-hmm. the Department of State has a Victims' Rights Address Confidentiality Program. We'd be more than happy to give you the information That's what I that. need because um, yeah. even though I moved and he doesn't know where I live, he's very computer savvy and he it would take him 10 seconds to find me this would black out your address with the dmv Mm -hmm. ds because i was always afraid that when he got out and he was going to be vengeful that he didn't even have to approach me he could just drive by and toss a molotov cocktail on my porch you know yeah we'll discuss i'll give you the info on that one of course Mm -hmm. you know yeah but did did your therapist or anybody give you any kind of resources to protect you from this psycho that he'll soon be at large no, i mean nothing uh, so. you know i i so when when he um attempted to kill me i went to um a, a place in town and they said well you know you just need to call the cops and i'm like no because if they let him out then i'm really dead and that's the kind of fear I have now of him getting out of prison in I July. And I'm a little nervous that yeah. he's going to be, you know, seek retribution. Because whether I had or not, he was convinced I put him back in prison. Right. And in his mind, he feels mm-hmm. that you've harmed him. Yes. Which you basically put the fire out with kerosene by just existing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been there. Trust me. Yeah. And there's a thing when people that are maladjusted like this feel that you've done them harm. They get really psychotic. Oh, yeah. I've seen him, you know, react to other people all that time that I was with him. I know what he's You've capable of. You've seen Mr. Of. Hyde? Yes. Okay. So what, what really disturbs me is this person chokes you. Mm-hmm. You're in therapy, and they don't give you anything more than restraining order. Restraining orders are great. However, without, you know, as our previous interviewee, Felicia, you said with the system, systemic domestic violence happens where... You get this piece of paper, and unless they actually make an arrest or the cops put in the correct code, so this is what it's happened. not going to do shit. The, the probation officer was the one who told me to get the restraining order, and he was already in jail. He was in custody. And I could see in his email, he said, well, Ruth just put out a restraining order against me. That means she's the one that put me here. Now I know it was her. Okay. We're going to end our segment with that. Thank you for your time. Stick around in the studio. I'm going to give you some very helpful information that your counselor should have given you. So this was our voices in our segment with Miss Anonymous. (laughs) And the story of the psycho-socio-bat-shit-crazy dude in jail. Um, I'm so sorry that happened to you, ma'am. And thank you for Mm -hmm. your courage. I, I, I think I have some resources for you. Thank you. Thank you guys, and we'll be back.